0: Uh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh. Transcend to another level. Gotta push the drive, gotta push the pedal. Kinetic waves, never settle. Uh Transcend to another level. Uh Transcend to another level. Push it, push it. Gotta push the drive, gotta push the pedal. Push it, push, it, push it. Kinetic waves, never settle. Push it, push, uh, push Transcend it. to another level. It's feeling like the world is in a dying need. Like the last of a dying breed We in our last days It feels like Armageddon Prophetic with the false prophets Is all I'm getting It's that God flow You know I had to tighten up People throw a shade You really need to brighten up Fuck a copyright, cause some of y'all don't copyright, don't copyright. Most of these flows blow Like a sloppy wipe You gotta be from the streets, dancer or athlete Quick to pull the trigger, but you scared to get your ass beat Before you know it, you'll probably end up with a rap sheet Prison over lyricism Is everlasting track me Yeah, I swear that some of y'all got Alzheimer's Y'all fail to recognize when you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since 10 on my Pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah, uh-huh Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cheatham, and it is episode number 25, and the date is March the 27th, 2021. The title for the podcast this week is the midterms, uh, 2022 midterms, uh, what can we expect? And um, the agenda for today is first, we'll go through feedback after that, we're going to go through the segment "What's on My Mind," um, and uh, the segment "What's on My Mind" is what to expect regarding the twenty uh, twenty two midterm elections. After that, next after that, we'll next go through the news, and we have several news stories that are up this week. Uh, the first one is another week, another mass shooting. The second one is, uh, surprise, surprise, a youth pastor sexually abuses a girl. Uh, Then after that, a social distancing dispute leads to a hate crime charge. And the next story is Michael Jackson has a heavenly lawyer, and we'll hear what his um, uh, heavenly attorney has to say. After that, we'll give another update on the uh, U.S. coronavirus uh, statistics. And then uh, finally in the news, I want to go over uh, the NFAC, what do they stand for, and to um, talk about a recent uh, story um, uh, about them as well. After the news, we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us, and in this week's episode of This Shit is for Us, I want to review a summary of the book, uh, The New Jim Crow, it came out um, uh a year or two years ago or so, uh, and I thought I presented some really, really good information that, um, and I want to discuss the nature of that book and what it talks about. Um, As um, I state most weeks, uh, Bible Study with with Atheist Mike is a, a monthly segment, so we won't be doing that again until April. But, uh, please, if you would like, uh, send me any suggestions, uh, for a Bible study that you'd like to hear. And you can send those suggestions to the email address feedback at rationalblackthought.com. That's feedback at rationalblackthought.com. Now, I'm thinking about, um, doing a Bible study on the entire book of Revelations. Uh, so of course I couldn't go through uh, each and uh, every verse of that scripture, but um, uh, to summarize it. But let me know what you think about that, or if you have something else that you would like to hear. Then in closing the um, episode of Rational Black Thought this week, I want to go through a little bit of uh, Black history and talk about um, Linda Blackman Lowry uh, and her contribution uh, to the cause of uh, the Black community. So that's what we have on the agenda. And we will take a uh, very short break. And once we get back, we'll get the listener feedback. All right, welcome back. One of the things um, I want to do before um, I start with listener feedback is to to let you know that um, there may be a slight uh, lack of energy in this week's segment. Uh, I did get my uh, second uh, COVID vaccine shot on Tuesday, Uh, felt good on Tuesday evening, felt great on Wednesday, but Thursday I experienced uh some of uh, the typical side effects that come from the vaccine uh which uh, uh, essentially it was just a complete lack of energy and um and uh, some nausea uh today um is friday and i'm record and uh, which uh, i'm recording and i feel a lot better but i'm still not a 100% um uh, over that but anyway uh let's go ahead and and get to listener feedback So one listener said that they really, really liked the Bible study, that it was uh, logically laid out, which is uh, what they had been looking for as it relates to um, an exposition on uh, the Scripture. They also reiterated, as did others, that the podcast is way too long, and so I've decided that I will... Uh, edit it to make sure that it is no longer than an hour and 15 minutes uh, this week. So we'll see how that goes and we'll see what, um, if anything, I need to remove from the podcast to make that happen. Also, one listener um, seemed to side with James in regards to his decision not to provide additional feedback on the podcast. Their statement to me was, Why are you asking for feedback if you're just going to get angry when you get it? Well, number one, I don't feel like that I was angry with any of the feedback I received. I just didn't agree with it. And I am passionate about the topics that I talk about. So it may have appeared that I was angry, but that is um, something that I've had to deal with all my life. Uh, whenever I have argued a point which I was passionate about, people thought that I was angry, but it's not that I'm angry, it's just that it's something that I really care about. And also, uh, the second point is that I really want feedback to improve the show. I I don't want feedback as someone feels it is their responsibility to simply be a critic. Um, And and. And just to find something to criticize for that purpose. Um, If they if someone is looking for any way that that um, they can help me improve the the podcast, then I'm uh, more than happy to listen to it, whether that is saying that they agree with a certain point or if they are saying that they disagree with a certain point uh so uh, i don't feel that uh, my response to the feedback that i received was anger uh but it was uh more related to uh disappointment in that it didn't appear to be based upon um a uh desire to improve the podcast also in a counter argument um one of the listeners uh replied back that some of the feedback that i received and that I talked about was like a person uh, that didn't vote, but still pontificated on what politicians should or shouldn't do. Um, I don't feel that James's feedback would fall into that category. But I think that some uh, people may have taken some of the feedback that way. Uh, But in any case, um, if James uh, decides that he wants to provide feedback in the future, I'm more than um, happy and willing to receive it. Uh, but if he has decided that for uh, the reasons that he stated and I uh, mentioned last week if he if he feels that it is best not to provide feedback, then I'm okay with that as well. So um, again though, I do uh, want and and encourage feedback and if anyone listening has any feedback, uh, you can, send me an email at feedback at rationalblackthought.com. So again, that's feedback at rationalblackthought.com if you would like to provide feedback on the show. And again, you don't have to agree with me. You can disagree. Uh, and uh, certainly, if uh, your feedback is a way to improve the podcast, I'm more than happy to receive that and to take it on. All right, so that's feedback for this week. Um, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, What's On My Mind? Okay, welcome so as I had mentioned in the intro, uh, the um, title of the segment, what's on my mind this week, is the 2020 midterms and, and really what uh, can we expect from that. And though I know it seems just like yesterday that we were heavily into the 2020 election cycle, we are only a little more than a year away from the 2022 midterms. And the two main political parties are already gearing up for the battle. As a recap of the 2020 election, uh, the Democrats, uh, just so you know, lost seats in the House, but were still able to uh, maintain a majority. Uh, The way that it worked uh, out in 2020, uh, the Democratic Party ended up with uh, 232 uh, there, or they had 232 seats before the um, election. And after the election, they ended up with 222. So they lost uh, 10 seats uh, in the House. The Republican Party uh, before the November 3rd election had 197 seats in the House. uh, And afterwards, they had um, 213. So they picked up 16 seats. Uh, you might note that there, that's a bit of a difference, um, uh, between the 10 and the 16. So where did they go? Well, there was one Libertarian Party seat, uh, prior to, uh, November's, uh, November's election, uh, which there were none after the election. So the Libertarian Party lost their only seat. And then there were also five vacancies, which were all filled. So that uh, is what makes up the difference. There are 435 uh, members of the House of Representatives, and that is the breakdown now, 222 for the Democratic Party and 213 for the Republicans. In the Senate, as everyone is aware, the Democrats gained enough seats to have a majority uh, that is, a majority with Kamala Harris as vice president casting any tiebreakers. So the Senate is 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. Now, the Republicans lost three seats in the 2020 Democratic um, election uh, that were, of course, picked up uh, by the Democrats. Uh, and two of those seats were uh, in Georgia uh, with John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock uh, picking up those two seats. So, in uh, in 2022, uh, the upcoming midterm election, all 435 House seats are up for re-election, and that is because House members are only elected for a term of two years. Senators are elected to a six-term um, uh, f- or a six-year term, and for 2022, 14 seats held by Democrats and 20 held by Republicans are up for the election in 2022 um, i could go through all of the names and um, uh, i will provide a link that shows them all uh, but i'm not going to list them all here uh, but of the names that are listed you might be surprised to see that raphael warnock is on the list that is uh, because um, he was uh, even though he was elected in 2022 uh, he is serving his and is serving his first year as a senator. But the reason he is up for reelection is that he was elected to determine uh, his election was about who would would serve out the term of Johnny I, Isaacson, who resigned in 2019. So the governor had uh, appointed uh, the Republican that uh, Warnock uh, ran against um, at to. Uh, serve out his seat, but that came up for election and um and Raphael Warnock won that. But because uh, that seat uh, was scheduled to expire at the end of this year uh, or uh, through next term, rather, uh, he is on the election for twenty twenty two. And I, as I have said numerous times, I'm not a Democrat. But where we are right now in history, our choice is only between an outright racist organization and one that will probably sell us out if they get what they want. Uh, and that is the outright racist organization is the Republican Party, and the one that will probably sell us out if they get what they want are, are the Democrats. But our only chances are with the Democrats, and therefore we need to start planning now on how to address the 20. 22 midterms. We need to be strategic, uh, but for right now, we need more information. We need to find out who is going to be running in the primaries for the 20 Republican seats. uh, And if it's a sure thing red state, that is, if we know for a fact that the Republican is going to win, we need to take a look at who's going to be running in those primaries and maybe register as a Republican to vote for the least egregious Republican in the primary. Uh And that is because we can always switch and vote for the Democrat in the general. But we need to be strategic about the way we plan out our vote for 2022. Now, Republicans have already started the process of voter suppression. And after I wrote just that sentence, uh the Georgia legislature this week just passed a bill so to suppress the vote that was signed by the racist governor. And he came on and talked a bunch of bullshit and nonsense saying, yeah, people say I'm a racist, but I'm not. But I've never heard anybody that's not a racist have to defend themselves as being not racist. Uh, if you if you are defending yourself, it's probably because you are, in fact, a fucking racist. And uh, certainly the, the uh, bill that was passed and now signed into law uh, by the governor in Georgia is, in fact, racist. Uh, it, it it combines with other uh, regulations that they had already put in place to limit, as an example, the number of polling places per county. To say that a, that if a county has a uh, hundred uh, people, a population of only a hundred, they get one, and if uh, if a county has a million, they get the same one. Uh, and as most of the Democrats live in urban areas, which are more densely populated. Uh, that, in fact, makes it uh, f- makes it for fewer vo- uh, votering, voting locations per, uh, per capita uh, in black and, and, and brown neighborhoods than it does in white. And now they're saying that if you have to stand in a long line, no one can bring you lunch or water. So it's completely ridicu- ridiculous, definitely voter suppression and 100 percent racist. So what, are, what do we need to do about that? We're going to have to counter that with a very strong voter, voter turnout campaign for the 2022 election. This election will be just as important as 2020. Even though we're not going to be fighting to remove an overly racist president, we will be fighting to maintain and hopefully increase the Democratic majority. That is to give us a chance to be able to get some of the things we want by holding the Democrats accountable. Uh, for us being a primary reason that they are are in power, and we're also going to be fighting against trump's attempt to remain relevant and to continue to his desire anyway to continue to exert uh, power over the republican agenda. so my suggestion is this: reach out to your local democratic offices and volunteer to help out uh, in any way you can. Encourage your friends and relatives uh, in other states to do the same thing and also in the state that you live. And also, this is one of the most important, become informed on the race both at the national level and the local levels and be prepared to articulate your point of view when asked. Also, donate funds to the races you care about and encourage everyone you know to do the same. The 2020 election is going to be extremely monumental in its, uh, in it, in its determining what the future looks like, and we need to be prepared to do two things. First of all, to come out and vote in mass, and secondly, to be informed and strategic about the way we cast our vote, so that we have the best opportunity to get what we want. All right, so. That's it for the segment um, this week of What's On My Mind. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the news. All right, welcome back. As it seems like every week, um, the news is, uh, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of, uh, breaking news stories that came out this week. Uh, the first one that I want to talk about is, um, another week, another mass shooting in the U.S. So less than one week after the mass shooting of mostly Asian American women in Georgia last week, another mass shooting has occurred this time in Colorado. And, um, and Colorado, of course, has had its uh, share of mass shootings in the past, so uh, this was just a, an, a, an extension of the, the um, devastation that that state has incurred uh, in the, by the hands of of mass uh, shooting perpetrators. The gunman this time has been identified as Ahmad al-Awa Alisa, um, a Syrian-born immigrant to the U.S., The initial information does not seem to indicate that the shooting was religiously motivated, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be the case. So Elisa killed 10 people, including a Boulder uh, police officer. The brother of the suspect stated that Elisa was upset with some former classmates, but it is not clear that any of the victims even knew him. So that does not seem to be, to me, a reasonable motive for the crime. Elise's brother also stated that his brother may have been suffering some, uh, from some form of mental illness, which I think is uh, just to establish a mental illness defense uh, for what occurred. But first of all, regarding last week's shooting, um, that is um, uh, the, the shooting uh, where the uh, perpetrator killed mostly Asian women, um, and it was a case where um, uh, law enforcement officers in the case and a member of Cong- Congress expressed sympathy for the white perpetrator. There was no sympathy expressed for the Syrian suspect this week. However, the initial reports from witnesses to the police stated that the shooter was a white male. This shooter killed nine people and then killed a police officer, and somehow he was apprehended with only a non-serious leg uh, wound. Just a few months ago, um, near the end of 2020, uh, police were called on a black man that seemed to be having a mental episode, and he was wielding a knife. He supposedly lunged at the officers and was shot in multiple times by both of the officers and was killed. In the case of a black man and this black man, he had not killed anyone to that point. So how is it that a suspect described as white can kill nine people, then kill a police officer, but somehow make it out alive? The other point I want to make about uh, about this is that last week's killing of mostly Asian American women was definitely racially motivated, but no one is willing to say so. Multiple outlets, including the mainstream liberal media, are talking are taking the suspect at his word that he was motivated by religion that is that he was trying to eliminate sexual temptation now i am certain that his religi- religious ideology had some uh, input into that but most of the the news outlets are even saying that the the suspect likely had previously paid for sex in the establishments that he targeted or targeted. But but keep in mind, as I said during last week about this shooting, there was no evidence that the, that the spas or massage parlors had ever been cited for prostitution. There was no indication that that was the case. And secondly, if you look at the ages of the women he killed, they range from 33 to 69 years old. Are we to believe that he was only tempted by middle aged Asian women? As far as I'm concerned, uh, it is highly unlikely that any of the women that this guy shot up and murdered, uh, that, that he had had sex with any of them. And if he was so intent on removing uh, temptation, why didn't he shoot up a strip club? Why didn't he shoot up a white strip club, as a matter of fact? There are plenty of them at, at Atlanta. So I find it hard to believe that last week's shooter had even met any of the women that he killed. Uh, and so from that perspective, though there may have been some religious motivation to the way that he thought, he was attempting to kill and murder people of Asian descent simply because they were Asian, in my opinion. And now that we know this week's shooter is from Syria, how long do you think it will take before this becomes a terrorist act? I feel that the likelihood that the the government will charge Alyssa with a hate crime is pretty high. At least they will attempt to do so, but they are are, are doing the opposite with the white guy that killed eight people, uh, with six of them being um, Asian uh, wh- American women. So they're they're highly restrained from calling the uh, the the murder of six Asian women a hate crime. Uh, but I am pretty sure that once they find out or now that they found out that the guy who murdered the uh, uh, now 10 people in uh, in Colorado uh, is Syrian, they're definitely going to say that that was a hate crime. OK, so that's it for um, another week, another shooting. The next story is about surprise, surprise, another youth pastor sexually abused a girl. So uh, uh, in New York, a Seaford man uh, sexually abused a girl he met as a youth pastor at a retreat in Michigan, uh, and that's uh, Nassau County police announced on uh, last Friday. Uh, Jesse Varga, Vargas, uh, 37, was arrested as a, at his home um, a, a week ago Friday and charged with second degree sexual abuse and endangering the welfare of a child. He will be arraigned um, uh, next uh, Friday in uh, uh, Mineola, or this past Friday, rather. Uh, Vargas met the girl uh, at the incredible Journey to Christianity retreat in 2011, according to the Special Victim Squad detectives. And in 2013, he arranged for her to visit his home, where he engaged in, sexual, in a sexual act with her, police said. The girl was 15 at the time. And the only reason that I bring up, uh, this story again is I just want to say again, how many of you out there are parents and continue to have your kids associated with church organizations and youth retreats and, and, and all of this kind of nonsense, especially when they're Catholic. This happens time and time and time again. And it is, it is so prolific that at this point, I think every single parent that puts their kids in one of these organizations that turns out to be abused, that parent should be charged as an accomplice uh, in their sexual abuse. Because it happens so often that that is what you should think is going to happen. You might as well go ahead, uh, go into the situation knowing that if you put your child into a uh a, a Christian um, youth group. That more than likely they're going to get abused. So let's stop doing that. Let's uh, let's look at reality for for what it is. Uh, realize that the number of uh, that the percentage of incidents of sexual abuse in so-called uh, Christian youth groups is way too high. And let's just stop participating. All right. Let's move to the next story. So in this next story, social uh, social distancing dispute leads to hate crime charges. And uh, like uh, we sometimes hear uh, the moniker Florida man, well, this is a Florida woman. And the, the Florida woman uh, faces hate crime charges after she was accused of hurling her- anti-Hispanic ethnic slurs at a man and physically attacking him during a social uh, distancing dispute. The new charges against Jennifer Susan Wright, 58, were announced on Monday in connection with an argument that began at the checkout line at a public supermarket in Hialeah, about 13 miles uh, northwest of Miami, according to NBC South Florida. The news station identified Wright as an anesthesiologist who was uh, affiliated with the Mount Sinai Medical Center. A man who has not been identified by authorities mentioned his COVID-19 spacing concerns to Wright while they were inside the store on January 20th, according to Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office press release. Upon leaving the store, an angry Miss Wright al- allegedly confronted the victim as he loaded his groceries into his car, coming within one foot of the victim's face, the press release states. Again, the victim asked Miss Wright to keep her distance, which appeared to enrage her even more and allegedly led to an outburst of verbal anger, including several derogatory anti-Hispanic ethnic slurs. Prosecutor said that Wright is accused of using her keys to scratch the man's car from the trunk to the passenger rear door, causing $567.64 in damages, which that's quite a specific amount. And um, considering how small it is, he must not have had a very nice car, but in, in any case, she still shouldn't have keyed it. Then she allegedly stabbed the man's car with her keys while saying that the victim needed to go back to his country, the attorney said. She, she uh, after the man grabbed his, his cell phone to call 9-11, Wright allegedly hit him with her fist, causing his phone to fall to the ground. She then allegedly kicked him when he bent down to pick it up and tried to crush the phone to keep the victim from using it. And that was also according to the uh, press release. As Miss Wright began to leave the scene, the victim attempted to take pictures of Miss Wright and of her vehicle license plate. And Miss Wright then pretended to go into a vehicle that was not hers, but then ran toward her vehicle, sprinted to her vehicle, and fled the scene, seeing the state attorney's office said. So Wright was charged with battery, prejudice, criminal mischief, and prejudice and tampering with a victim, which are all felonies. Now, of course, her attorney says the allegations are made against Dr. Wright or simply not true, uh, and that they look forward to discrediting, discrediting this ugly attack against their client um, that is filled with lies and twisted information to fit someone else's political agenda. Um, of course, uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center said that she is fired and is no longer uh, responsible for patient care, or actually not fired, but no longer responsible for patient care pending the completion of a full investigation. Uh, in my opinion, I'm pretty sure she fucking did it. Uh, and uh, it sounds exactly like what some fucking Karen would do. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty sure that, uh, Miss Wright, uh, even though Karen's not her name, she certainly has embodied the Karen mentality in what she did. All right, so let's move on to the next story. And this one is a bit fucking crazy. So, uh, a prophet was on a, uh, um, a videotaped, um, um, podcast or, or not a podcast, but a, uh, a, a YouTube video recently where he told the host that he is Michael Jackson's heavenly lawyer, uh, and that Michael Jackson is now in heaven dancing for the Lord. And this story came from uh, Hammett Meta at the Friendly Atheist blog, uh, which I like to get a lot of good information, because Hammett goes through a lot of good detail for these types of stories. So anyway, during an interview, um, uh, with the uh, a self-described Christian prophet uh Manuel Manuel Johnson of the Mega Praise Ministries, told the always gullible Steve Schultz of the Elijah List Ministries that he is the lawyer for Michael Jackson in heaven. And that the late disgraced king of Pop is currently singing and dancing for God. And Hammett said, I'm not sure which part of that makes the least sense. So um the, here's here's what the uh, uh, the uh, prophet um, uh, had to say. This is Manuel Johnson, who, by the way, is black, um, of Mega Praise Ministries, had to say. He said, like I said, God has given me an assignment as an attorney. And as he took me uh, to heaven, he says, take your position. And there was an office in heaven with my name on it. And as an attorney to intercede for very well-known people on earth before they died, because something was going to happen and they were going to be weighed out in the balance. And I needed to intercede. He went on to say, I'm going to tell you something. Michael Jackson went to heaven before he died. God had visited him. And then Schultz, the guy that was interviewing him, said, really? Uh, like, what the fuck <laughs> is what he was saying? And, and, but he continued, there were prayers that went out for him. There were prayers that went up for him and the people would intercede. And Michael Jackson accepted the Lord Jesus as his savior. The enemy wanted him. Oh boy, the enemy wanted him. And the enemy had set up witches to try to take him. And then these warlocks and witches made these crazy YouTubes that he was in hell. Um, I have no idea what the fuck he's talking about there. Uh, but if the witches and warlocks made YouTube videos, I'm pretty sure that it was just saying that anybody that did what Michael Jackson did probably would go to hell. But this uh prophet went on to say, this is not true, saints. This is false. Michael Jackson is in heaven. And know what he does? He dances and sings for the Lord like a minstrel. Well, he didn't say like a minstrel, but that's what I'm saying. So he's tap dancing in uh, for the Lord. He the the uh, prophet said I had a small trance got me God put me in a trance and I had a chance to see Michael Jackson last year during the time of the epidemic and sickness and God allowed Michael to dance he says tell the people on earth this is Michael tell the people on earth to dance before the Lord and start to celebrate good things are coming to celebrate good things are coming and he's dancing and he's singing He's a songwriter in heaven, heaven. Glory to God. And so, uh, Hamid Meta, what he had to say about this was leave it to God to just ignore Jackson's alleged sexual abuse of abuse victims, so he could see his show, and leave it to God to give uh, a living being front row seats. Totally believable, every bit of it. Yeah. By the way, according to Johnson's own bi- biography, he is uh, he has no training as a lawyer. Uh, he's just practicing law without a license in the afterlife, but he does have a doctorate degree in theology from Everlasting Chips Ministry and an honorary doctorate degree from Next Dimension University. The first place doesn't even really exist. Check out the application, and it's downright hilarious for him to claim that he only has an honorary doctorate from a school whose actual doctorates wouldn't even count if they existed. So, professional liars can get with anything as long as they claim to be Christian, Hammett Metaset. said. And I agree, this is completely fucking nonsense, but if you watch the video, which I will provide the link to, this guy is saying this shit like it's real, like it's true, and like people are actually going to believe that God took a non-lawyer and brought him up to heaven to be a lawyer for the dead uh and that he saw michael jackson can, uh doing a minstrel stroll show uh tap dancing for god the long bearded white man um in order to uh entertain him uh so uh again another fucking stupid ass uh uh so called prophecy uh but what else can we expect all right, so the next story, um, again, I just want to give a, a quick update on the coronavirus and the statistics in the U.S. So the corver- coronavirus, ca- uh, coronavirus cases now are um, just uh, under 31 million, uh, uh, 30 million, uh, roughly 700,000 to be exact, uh, and the deaths are just under uh, 560,000. The new deaths per day is uh, just above uh, 1,000. And again, as that is way down from the highs, but 1,000 a day deaths is still high and still way, way too many. So hopefully um, we can continue to follow the guidelines, uh, wear masks, social distance, and when you get the opportunity, uh, get the COVID uh, vaccine. Like I said, I got mine, second shot. Did have some discomfort, but even with that discomfort, I am very, very happy that um, I now have the two shots completed, uh, and after two weeks um, from Tuesday, I will be considered fully vaccinated. As I have been doing over the last uh, several weeks, I do want to talk about um, a a story of a real individual Uh, related to the COVID, to COVID-19, uh, just to make this more real. Since a lot of times when we hear that a thousand deaths per day, we look at it as it really doesn't mean anything and that it's just, um, an amorphous number. Uh, but these are real people that are dying. And in this one, it's Joe Thompson. Uh, Joe Thompson broke racial barriers during the decades that she played the piano and sang to audiences from Detroit's uh, top supper clubs to ones in Cuba, New York, London, Paris, and all during the 1950s. The the Detroit native enjoyed a career that spanned decades, playing the piano and singing in cabarets and nightclubs around the world. However, unfortunately, she died of COVID-19 complications. So even though she was elderly, she was living her life fine until she contracted COVID-19. And because of COVID-19, she is no longer with us. So again, this is real. These numbers are real people. It's not just a statistic. And therefore, do everything you can to uh, prevent the spread of the disease, to prevent uh, the cases, and thereby help to prevent the number of um mutations that occur, and that includes wearing a mask, social distancing, uh, staying at home whenever possible, and getting your COVID-19 vaccination. All right, so the next story and the last story that I want to talk about um, is a group um, uh, that's called um, uh, the NFAC. And I I saw uh the leader of that organization being um interviewed um on MSNBC um uh this week, uh, but uh I wanted I had never heard of them and so I, I found another article about them that came out uh, some time ago that I, I wanted to review just to provide a little bit more information about uh who they are and what they're up to. So um, about, and this story says about two dozen black clad members of the black militia group um, challenging a hanging death ruled to be a suicide protested fri- Friday at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, and this is in, in uh, Dugsville, Georgia. The group was respectful and protested peacefully according to social media posts from the Sheriff's Office. Still, the jail was placed on lockdown until the group left, according to a a Facebook post from the sheriff's office. The militia group, known as the Not Fucking Around Coalition, or the NFAC, were protesting the conclusion of a February investigation by the sheriff's office that Stephen Stiles had killed himself. When Douglas County authorities learned that the group would march, Douglas County Sheriff Tim Pounds and Dugsville Police Chief Gary Spark reached out uh, Thursday uh, to the NFAC to let them know that they were welcome to protest as long as it was peaceful. Now, one of the things that I'll say about that, uh, if if it was some white militia would they also add that you're welcome to protest as long as it was be it was peaceful? I don't think they would have, because as long as you register for a protest, you are supposed to be allowed to do so. But they were afraid of this black militia. Pounds also agreed to meet with them and members of the Stiles family to discuss their concerns. The group started started at uh, Ann Arbor uh, Place Mall in in Douglasville and then drove a short distance to the sheriff's office where they parked and then marched in formation to be met by deputies around 100 yards from the front door. According to the sheriff's Facebook post, NFAC members sported black clothing, ballistic vests, facial coverings, firearms and high capacity magazines. When told they could proceed no further while carrying weapons, eight NFAC members laid down their arms and then went to the conference room where Styles' brother uh, with Styles' brother, rather, after discussing the case with Pounds, according to the Facebook post, the group left the building, rearmed, briefly paused uh, for pictures, and then left the premises altogether. The march stemmed from a February investigation into the hanging of Styles' deaths whose whose body was found in a remote area off Mason Creek Road, 250 yards from his car. Investigators later learned that he had been on parole for child molestation. Records from Stiles' ankle monitor showed that he had left home nine days early after an argument with his grandmother, then drove straight to where his car and body were found, a chair found near Stiles' body had an impression of one of his shoes. The sheriff's office posted more complete details of its investigation into Stiles' death in its uh, Friday fo- Facebook post. But if you're not aware of NFAC, they are a heavily armed, all-black militia known, as I had said, of, as the Not-Fucking-Around Coalition. And it was founded and led by John Fitzgerald Johnson, who was also known as Grandmaster Jay. And if you're as old as me, then you probably know who Grandmaster Jay is, uh, since um he was uh one of the um uh, the old school members of um hip hop or or rap. Um and uh, and grandmaster Jay started this group in 2017 in Atlanta. Uh, Johnson has said that the group marches for racial equality and ending police brutality, uh, and it's in a response to the white-arm militias that have come out in light of the heightened racial ten- tensions. And uh, as I say, I saw Grandmaster Jay on news on a news interview this week, which is why I wanted to do this story on his group. One thing that he said in the interview that really stuck with me uh, was when he was answering a question about how the NFAC was different from white militias. And his response was, How many times have we stormed a Capitol? How many times have we committed violence? None. And I think, uh, I think for me, I'm going to join this group uh, because I have uh, four AR 15s, a tactical shotgun, and several um, handguns. So, with that being the case, I think I'm a good member, uh, black, armed, and, uh, willing to, uh, stand up, uh, for our rights. So, uh, I'm going to look to see if there is a local chapter of the NFAC, and if not, I may decide to start one. All right, so, uh, that's it for the news this week. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we will get to the segment I call, This Shit is for Us. welcome back. As I had mentioned in the intro, the uh, title of this week's segment of This Shit is for Us is The New Jim Crow. And so I want to talk about really the book uh, that came out uh, with that title uh, and what it means and uh, exactly what uh, message they were uh, uh, presenting. And as I say every week, as it relates to this segment, this segment is by me, a black man, and it is intended for my black brothers and sisters. Uh, If you are not black, you can still listen to it, but if you don't quite get what I'm talking about, uh, it's because this is a black thing. So I purchased the book, um, The New Jim Crow, several years ago and and found it to be an eye-opening book that covered an incredibly important topic, which is the over-incarceration of black men and women um, and the continued and sustained harm that it causes. In this week's segment of This Shit is for Us, I'd like to review the main points of the book uh, and the conclusions, and I also want to review uh, the path forward as outlined in a follow-up book by a different author, but that book did receive kudos from the author of The New Jim Crow. Uh, as well. So, first of all, just to go through um, a summary of the book, The New Jim Crow, and, and what they talk about. Um, the book starts out with a foreword by Carnell West. Now, if you don't know who Carnell West is, um, uh, he is a um, uh, a scholar. Uh, my own personal point of view is, is that I think that he takes too much credit to speak for black people because, uh, he, he is, a, he is a friend and partner of, um, um, Skip Gates, um, uh, of Harvard, uh, who, um, and he and Cornel West are essentially about the same to me. But, uh, in any case, uh, Cornel West, um, uh, argued that this book will prove to be inst- indispensable to the fight against racial justice in the contemporary moment, and that it embodies the spirit of Martin Luther King. Uh, West critiques the political climate that has flourished under, uh, at the time, President Barack Obama, and arguing that despite the apparent signs of racial progress, which we talked about last week, the United States is still a deeply divided and unequal and unjust society and i certainly do agree with Cornel west on that though i don't agree with him on many things but i do agree with him on that and like i said we talked about last week about racial progress and black progress and how uh the election of barack obama tricked some of us, some of us into thinking that um that we were over that so uh, this book is by, is by a woman uh, a black woman named michelle alexander and in the, in the introduction, um, Alexander, um, has a comparison between an incarcerated African American man today and the man's ancestors. Uh, she goes through, uh, like his father, uh, his grandfather and his great grandfather, uh, and, and basically says that no, none, of them could vote. And in the contemporary, with the contemporary individual, the man could not vote because he was a felon. So Alexander explains that um, 10 years ago, she was suspicious about the claim that mass incarceration was a new germ, Jim Crow. Uh, but while working on racial justice advocacy at the American Civil Liberties Union, she came to change her mind. Um, and then, going on in chapter one, Alexander examines the history of race the racial caste system in America, arguing that the cycle of different systems of racist control prove that racism is adaptable and that uh, and that it will change to suit a particular error. Uh, in other words, racism hasn't gone away at all, but it has changed and adapted to be more acceptable to the current um, Uh, age we find ourselves in and the environment that we find ourselves in. Um, She says that during the colonial period, black people were brought to America as cheap labor and placed at the bottom of the racial caste system that was created by slavery. This system was eventually replaced by Jim Crow, which although it looked different from slavery, operated according to the same principles of monitoring, regulating, and suppressing black people. Then when, civil, when the Civil Rights Movement tore down Jim Crow, it seemed sadly inevitable, inevitable that another racist system of control would emerge in its place, and this system took the form of the War on Drugs, which used the crack ep- epidemic as an excuse to aggressively police and, incorpor- and incarcerate an enormous number of pl- poor people of color. In in chapter two, uh, she describes a criminal justice system through a step-by-step analysis of the process of being arrested, charged, and incarcerated for a drug offense. Alexander uh, argues that a key part of the war on drugs has been allowing uh, uh, the police to operate with very little oversight. A series of major court cases that have given the police free reign to stop people at random and it is now all but impossible for civil rights litigators to challenge discriminatory police practices such as stop and frisk. In Chapter 3, Alexander examines the racial discrimination embedded within the criminal justice system. She points out that in some states, 80 to 90% of those sent to, to prison on drug charges are African American. This enormous discrepancy cannot be blamed either on black culture or old-fashioned deliberate racism. Rather, much of the racial injustice of mass incarceration can in fact be attributed to unconscious bias. This is made worse by laws that appear to be race-neutral on the surface, but in fact operate in deeply racist ways. This includes the 100 to 1 ratio in sentencing recommendations for crack versus powder cocaine. And, uh, several years ago, that came up, uh, in, in Indianapolis when there was a story about, uh, I believe it was a person related to the governor at the time, white person, of course, who was caught with, uh, two kilos of, of cocaine, uh, and was sentenced to probation. Uh, whereas there were some individuals that were caught with, uh, less than, um, than half an ounce of crack cocaine that was sentenced to thirty years, uh, and so certainly that does happen. And those those laws are definitely race race based, and it is a, it is an attempt to allow, uh, especially considering that there's no fucking difference between crack and cocaine; they're the same thing. So uh, to say that 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 having uh, uh, four pounds of it. Uh, is is less is, is less of, an, of an, an offense of of having um, a, a, a eighth or a half an ounce of it is just completely ridiculous. In chapter four, Alexander considers the stigma associated with being a convicted felon in today's world. She argues that when defendants are often uh, offered plea deals that do not include prison time they will likely not be aware of how much their lives will be affected by being classed as criminals and relegated to the undercast of American society. Felons are constantly given the impression that they are not wanted within the mainstream society and must navigate an impossible maze of rules, restrictions, fines, and fees in order to avoid being sent immediately back to jail. And and certainly I have seen that to be true uh, on a number of occasions as um, that uh, the um, uh, recidiv- recidivism rate on on people going back to prison is extremely high and, and much higher in the black community than it is in the white community. In Chapter 5, Alexander examined moments in which the prominent figures in the media, politics, and popular culture have been asked the question, where have all the black men gone? And she finds it odd that despite the ubiquity of this question, nobody gives an honest answer that a large percentage of them are in prison. Alexander argues that in order to address the problem of mass incarceration, we must become more honest about the fact that it is taking place. That is, we must acknowledge reality. And in the sixth and final chapter, Alexander argues that people have been living in a state of collective denial over the issue of mass incarceration, she is particularly critical of the silence on the issue among civil rights lawyers, who we would expect to have more awareness about it than the general public. Alexander points out that mass incarceration is, notably different, is a notably different problem than the racial justice issues over which civil rights lawyers have successfully taken action in the past. Whereas in the 1950s, litigators were keen to use respectable figures such as Rosa Parks as a face of their campaign. It is difficult, uh, it is difficult uh, to find convicted felons who will be deemed, quote, respectable, end quote, among the general public. Because of this dilemma, civil rights lawyers have tended to focus on issues such as affirmative action. Which affect middle class, wealthy, quote, innocent, end quote, black people rather than poor and incarcerated. And I certainly agree that that is the case. And we'll talk about that a little bit more um, when when we go on uh, with this. So um, uh, in the end, Alexander includes a quotation from James Baldwin that I think is is very poignant. Uh, and this was James Baldwin's letter to his nephew published in The Fire Next Time. And in the letter, Baldwin urges, urges his nephew to remain strong and promises that the fight for justice can be won. And his book uh, ends with Baldwin's statement, um, or, or her book, that is, Alexander's book, ends with Baldwin's statement, we, quote, we cannot be free until they are free, end quote. And I certainly think that that is something that we should look at and the way that we should look at it uh, until we start to reverse this mass incarceration of black men and women. Uh, we cannot sit back and say that we are free regardless of wins in affirmative action, regardless of being able to elect a, a black president, et cetera, et cetera. Until they are free, um, we are not free. All right. uh, As I mentioned, there was a follow on book that was titled Building a Movement to End the New Jim Crow. And this book is by a guy by the name of Daniel Hunter. It's a short book, just 71 pages, and it has uh, three uh, chapters. Uh, Chapter uh, chapter one talks about the roles uh, that need to be included in any movement uh, to reverse um, the new Jim Crow or the mass incarceration of black people uh and the story talks about um how hunger hunger strikes that originated in Pelican Bay state prison uh in the shoe uh which was a horrifying um place where prisoners would be thrown uh giving them very little access to light uh let alone any movement outside um it talks about how that stem- how that uh broadened from a single hunger hunger strike into a movement and he presents several myths in cap- in chapter one. Uh, the first myth is that movements are lit like a match. And uh, Hunter talks about the fact that in reality, uh, the original 2011 hunger strike took five years to build, and the four men needed to build trust, uh, talking about their personal lives and then settling on a strategy. Especially if you get into the details of the book, uh, the the four men were. The heads of uh, what were considered to be gangs at the prison, uh, which were uh, the white supremacists, the uh, uh, black nationalists and uh, and 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 others. So they didn't go in trusting one another and uh, and it took uh, some time uh, for that trust to build. The second myth is movements are built by heroic figureheads. And while we might think of, he said, of Martin Luther King Jr. or Mohandas Gandhi or either uh, even Cesar Chavez uh, or even the, the four hunger strikers at Pelican Bay uh, as her- heroic leaders, movements are far more dynamic than that. They they're, They are built by many organization groups and loose-knit networks that organize and act together for change. His next myth that he debunks is that movements require complete internal unity. Successful movements always have internal disagreements and divisions. Working for unity is great, he says, but so is accepting the reality that ideological purity isn't a requirement for us to engage and continue a movement together, which is what I have always said as well. Unity is not about um, uh, unity of tactics and unity of ideology. It is about unity of purpose. And once we all know what we want to do, there can be disagreements about how to get there, and we can find common ground to move forward. And the last myth that he talks about is movements uh, succeed if they mobilize large mass actions. And he says that's a myth. Movements need ongoing resistance. Otherwise, the power holders can just wait until the march is over and continue to ignore the movement's request. And so he's saying that, yeah, you can organize a march on on Washington and bring a million black men uh, there, uh, but that's not going to really create a movement. Uh, the people can just watch you march, and after the march is over and you all dissipate back to your homes, then they can continue to ignore everything that you ask for. Um, Hunter then goes on to describe uh, the types of roles required to form and sustain a movement, uh, and they are helpers, uh, people that uh, offer support, uh, advocates such as lawyers or social workers um, to help individuals survive and navigate the rules, organized, organizers that bring uh, the people together, and uh, rebels, which are bring the fire and energy uh, to uh, the movement. Uh, next in chapter two, building uh, strong groups, uh, Hunter provides several organizing principles that are required to bring people together. Uh, he does recite the history of the Montgomery bus boycott, which I thought was interesting, uh, and the myth of Rosa Parks as the first black woman to refuse to give up her seat. And he tells of Claudette Colvin, uh, who was arrested for refusing to give up her seat long before Rosa Parks, but the, NAAC, the NAACP did not feel that she was a sympathetic case because she swore at the police when she was arrested and she was an unwed mother. So they waited for someone better suited. Uh, and, uh, he also talks about, uh, Cece McDonald, a black transgender woman who was put in prison after, f- after she allegedly killed a man. Who had shouted racial and transphobic epithets at her and slashed her face. And he notes that there was an ebony.com article at the time that came out that was aptly titled, Why Aren't We Fighting for CC McDonald? Now, he isn't, what he's saying isn't that that was necessarily a bad thing, that it was okay to wait for sympathetic, um, individuals to, uh, to, Move to uh, pre- present the movement or to, to build a movement around, but that it required those other people as well, uh, like uh, Claudette uh, uh, Coven and CC McDonald. Uh, their stories are important as well. Um, and essentially, what he talked about as far as the organizing principles is that we need to prioritize relation building. Uh, he said the emphasis should be on. Uh, connecting to many different types of people that can support the movement and not to eliminate anyone. So don't eliminate C.C. McDonald. Don't eliminate Claudette Colvin, but certainly bring in Rosa Parks and others as well. He also talked about organizing one on one meetings. Basically what he said that you can do what I'm doing, talk about a podcast and you can have uh, YouTube videos and you can have uh, mass uh, uh, events where you give speeches, but that the main conversations is one on one meetings talking about, uh, and he talked about the power of one on one conversations and suggested that those who, of us who want to start a movement, uh, should take time to talk to someone else, a person in one on one. And he also said that we should recruit people outside our cir- circle to, uh, his suggestion was show up at events and meetings outside your circle, try new methods to recruit and follow up when people ask you about your group and what you're doing. And then uh, finally, in chapter three, um, he talked about creating effective campaigns to talk and he talked about the difference between uh, an endless action that leads nowhere uh, and uh, targeting a campaign that includes a series of actions that lead to a goal, a goal. Uh, which I think is important as well. We can't just uh, continue to march time after time after time. Uh, We need to have a clear goal in mind and a series of actions that lead to a definitive conclusion. And speaking of conclusion, uh, to conclude this segment of This Shit is for Us, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, makes a compelling case that the war on drugs is really a, quote, war on soul brothers, uh, end quote, which uh, is a coming from a song uh, coming home by The Last Poets that I really like. Um, and it is, in effect, merely a new version of the same type of thinking, uh, that is racism and white supremacy, that led to slavery and then to Jim Crow. And then Daniel Hunter's book then presents techniques on how we can organize to combat this problem and affect real change in the world. So let's um, uh, look at the situation for what it is, as Michelle Alexander said, and let's look for ways to combat it and reverse that, um, as uh, Daniel Hunter stated in his book. All right, that's it for uh, the segment. This shit is for us and for this week's podcast. So uh, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll end the podcast for this week. Welcome back, so um, in closing out the podcast this week, um, I want to talk about a story that I saw which um, to me was really kind of um, a, a black history moment, uh, and it's talking about uh, Linda Blackman Lowry, which I didn't know of her. Uh, so maybe some of my listeners, Uh, do know of her, um, and therefore this may be a bit redundant for you, uh, but I found it to be very, very interesting. So let me go through and and just read some excerpts from this um, uh, story. Sunday marked the 56th anniversary of the Civil Rights March from Selma to Montgomery. In 1965, as black residents in the South Marched in hopes of registering to vote, they were met with violence at the hands of police and white supremacist groups. On March 7th of that year, peaceful protesters planned a march from Selma to Montgomery to protest the death of a black man fatally shot at an Alabama, who fatally shot by an Alabama state trooper. Those protesters were attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in what is now known as Bloody Sunday. Weeks later, on March 21st, about 2,000 people set out to complete the march from Selma to Montgomery with protection from the U.S. Army troops and the Alabama National Guard. The youngest woman to participate in that monumental march was 15-year-old Linda Blackman Lowry. Before her 15th birthday, she was arrested and sent to jail nine times, including two stays at a state prison camp. As a result of the vicious attacks on Bloody Sunday, Linda Blackman-Lowry still carries her scars from the injury, injury she sustained on her face and head. She said her decision to continue marching was motivated by anger. And I, I'm just going to take a quick stop on that and, and and agree that anger sometimes is a very positive motivating force. And uh, go on to... to um, Quote what she had said. She said, quote, "When we arrived in Montgomery four days later, after we started that march, I remember just feeling down on falling down on my knees and crying. I couldn't stop crying, and I was crying for that anger I felt. End quote. It was real anger at this point that drove me to the walk from Selma to Montgomery. I was angry with Governor George Wallace for what he had done to me." and the other people on that bridge on March 7th. I was angry, but I was also afraid, end quote. And to me, that's an exercise in courage. A 15-year-old who had been beaten on that same bridge came out um, uh, four days later to do that march anyway, even with the scars and the injuries still showing uh on her face and head. Lowry said she hated the people that subjected her and other protesters to violence, hated and uh, uh, hatred and harmed, uh, or, or showed them, rather, hatred and harm, but then her feelings changed. She said, quote, when we reached Montgomery after four days, I was just relieved, and then I became proud. I was proud of myself because I had started something and I had completed it, end quote. She said, quote, I did not know we were making history, end quote. And that's the thing. You never know when you're making history. You just do the right thing at the right time, and it can turn out to be historic. When asked about the mental scars she carries, Lowry said that she could not talk about the incidents for 40 years before telling her story. Her book, Turning 15 on the Road to Freedom, uh, my story of the 1965 Selma Voting Rights March, documents her experience marching for the voting rights uh, and some legislators are trying uh, to limit today. So she marched and was beaten for voting rights that, as I had indicated, Georgia legislators have already imposed limitations on today. Her advice to to today's activists is to look back to the past and enhance the present. She said, quote, now, young people, you have a bigger and more dangerous fight to do, hopefully nonviolent, end quote. And again, hopefully, she said, but not necessarily. And she said, quote, and that's to put the world word human back in humanity. And, uh, and I think that, that that is a very, very a good way to say it, that, the, that what young people have to do today is to try to put the word human back into humanity. And she wants young activists to know that they have the wisdom and the power uh, to make a change. She said, quote, we put the word unity back into the word community in 1965. It is up to you now to put the word human back in the word humanity. When you do that, your life, your future generations lives will not have to go through what you're going through right now. So I agree with what she had to say, and I think her book is going to be fantastic. Uh, I am going to look to get a copy of that. All right, so that's it uh, for the podcast uh, this week. I'd like to remind you that the uh, intro music is Transcend by K.I.R.K. The outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Stitcher, Amazon, and many other platforms. If it's not available on the platform you typically use, just let me know and I will get it at it. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you can, leave me a five-star review. I'd like to end you with the words, end with uh, this podcast with the words of Frederick Douglass, if there is no struggle, there can be no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.